In the shadows of Mount Everest, a train awaits. But be warned, those attempting to reach the summit must face him. Chilling new ride at Disney's Animal Kingdom Park. Welcome to Detour to Neverland, your guide to living your best Disney life through your hobby or business. Here's your hosts, Brendan and Catherine. Welcome back to Detour to Neverland. Today is episode number 180. Today we are continuing our storytelling series covering Expedition Everest Legend of the Forbidden Mountain. But this is also a very important and special episode. Because why, Catherine? Because we have a special guest. <laughs> yes, so Catherine's sister, Elizabeth, is here with us to talk about this Yeti. Hey, y'all. <laughs> I'm so glad to be back and so happy to talk about one of my favorite attractions. So it's been a long time since you've been on the show, probably like our Disneyland recap, which was August or October, October. of 2018, Ooh. which is hard to think about. Yes. Yeah. So if this is your first episode listening to us, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for your returning as well. This storytelling series is something that we've been doing because we wanted to take a deeper look at Walt Disney World and Disneyland attractions and learn about the storytelling aspects of what the Imagineers are trying to tell us and what are the lessons that we can take away from that. Whole point just being that maybe you view something a little bit differently on your next trip or you notice something that you didn't before and it's good fun research for us as well. This episode, I will say, was the most fun I've had doing any research. The history of Expedition Everest is so much deeper than I ever realized. Yeah, it was one of those. I was really excited when I was doing the research for Radiator Springs Racers and because I thought the same thing. I had a rich history. But Brendan did the same thing where he was like running into the room to tell me every single thing that he found. Yeah, so I also want to talk about the audio that was at the very beginning of this episode. And it was a TV ad that they ran in 2005 and 2006 to promote the opening of Expedition Everest. I want to point out, it says he. It's a male Yeti. Elizabeth, is that crushing? It's extremely crushing because I have a very fond and profound belief that it is Betty the Yeti. Maybe we learn that Betty is a girl, like we learned how Kevin is a girl and up, it can be a transcendent Yeti. We don't we don't know yet. Betty could be a girl. <laughs> I mean, I guess we don't know what Betty's preferred pronouns are, so who knows? Kevin was a girl. There is still hope for Betty. That's true. Hey, that's a valid point. Okay. We can go with it. Okay. So Let's jump in to the ride walkthrough just so everybody can experience what Expedition Everest has to offer from a storytelling aspect. Yeah, so similar to 
when we talked about Tower of Terror, the storytelling of this attraction really starts before you even step foot in the queue or even on the ride. I mean, one thing that stands out is that this is in the Himalayan mountains and it's a huge part of just the scenery um, and what you see in Animal Kingdom. So I think that in itself kind of entices people to want to ride the ride because you see this huge mountain and you want to know what's in there. And it kind of starts to create that sense of adventure. Don't you think? Absolutely. I love how you can see the Himalayan mountains from across the park. And I think it just serves as almost a second icon for Animal Kingdom itself. Well, I also want to point out that it is large and looming, but it is hidden from a lot of other parts of the park. You maybe can see it from Dino Land is the only way, only place that I can think of. But anywhere in Africa, you probably don't see it. I mean, the foliage helps and things like that. But we've talked about how used to, maybe some a little bit now, they were so tuned into sight lines and making sure that things were only revealed when they wanted them to be. And I think that stays true for this one. That's really only in Asia. And really, once you get to Yak and Yeti, it's when the first time that you can see it. That's true, which is crazy because when you're actually on the ride and you're going up, 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 and you can see so much, it's hard to believe that they were able to hide it so well. But it is located in Asia, and it's accessed through the village of Sirkazong in the kingdom of Anandapur. Anandapur. Dang it. I was so close. And it sits at the base of, of course, the Himalayans. And like Brendan said, that area starts just before Yak and Yeti, but it ends once you start to cross over that bridge into the Finding Nemo musical area. Technically, where does Finding Nemo fall is that dino land or is that asia honestly i have a very poor opinion of finding nemo the musical so i just like to ignore it this is uh we need to put a disclaimer elizabeth does not speak for the show (laughs) i don't so um so you don't care where it sits no it's sort of just like in no man's land for me it's a it's just a bathroom stop (laughs) wonderful bathroom stop cannot recommend it enough (laughs) Like, it they're hidden. hidden. Yeah. Yeah. Always very clean. I, I just thought about that of who takes ownership over. That, that is interesting because you'd think if you're going to have, like, a Finding Nemo show, it would almost fit better at the sea in Epcot where they have the ride. Obviously, they don't have the stage there or anything like that. But it is an interesting, interesting we, little area. We should know this, but what was in that theater before Nemo? I don't remember. Tarzan. Do they ever have a Tarzan? Well, that's okay. I think someone will have to let us know. Yeah, I'm sure somebody knows. But basically the story goes that Norbu and Bob (laughs) are two entrepreneurs from the 1920s, and they've set up a tour company called Himalayan Escapes. And I think this ride kind of... Now that it's more updated and you can walk through the queue towards the end there and it pops up with people's names, I feel like it's more obvious now that that's what the tour company is called. Maybe that's just me, but Himalayan Escapes, Tours and Expeditions, and a lot of the shops that are in Anandapur are left over from the Anandapur Tea Company, which used to be a train shop. It was a tea company 
that would use the trains to transport their tea. I see. Yes. And that's kind of the foundation of the story. Eventually, it closed due to a series of mysterious accidents that happened while they were transporting tea. And Liz, where do you think the the mystery comes from? Well, I would I would just have to guess maybe a yeti. <laughs> The Yeti, and that's kind of the mystery and the, you know, adventure part of it, the thrill of wondering what happened. So I think that's a really interesting background story. But to me, until we did this research, that wasn't like in your face. I don't know. Do you get the same thing? Well, I didn't realize that the tea company's influence goes outside of the queue. That all of the shops up until Yak and Yeti are all have like a tea influence. Like the Joffrey's there mm-hmm. is named something with tea. A lot of the shops have if that reference on there. So I didn't realize that it was that widespread throughout Anandapur that it's not just self-contained. So that's why it makes me think of Tower of Terror that it's probably even more so than Tower of Terror that the story is being told to you before you're to the attraction. Yeah, and it's very intentional. And I love that because, you know, when we go, whenever it may be, whenever we can go next, we are definitely going to look for those things more. You know, we're going to look for those different influences from the tea company because we know now to look for them. So that'll be a fun activity for us. But basically... Norbu and Bob have revived the trains and they're going to use them to transport hikers to the base of Mount Everest. So what happens is guests board the train after entering the queue through the booking office and you come up to a pagoda, which is like a Yeti shrine and a Yeti museum that contains all of those different artifacts and information on the legends of the Yeti. Does anyone have any artifacts that stand out to them? Um, my favorite is always just to look for the Yeti impression and the Yeti footprint, um, like the cast of it, because um, I have pretty small feet. <laughs> so I don't know. It's just it's just fun. I think it's a, always a place marker to know how close you're getting to the fast pass merge point. I had never realized that there were so many different elements to those buildings and the rooms that you're walking through. I knew that the, the booking office part, because that's at the very beginning, but I didn't really catch note of the pagoda, which is in the standby queue. So we don't walk through that too often, but you can see it. People throw quarters in there all the time. That's all I remember. <laughs> and I guess Yeti's like quarters or shiny things. Yeah. And then the museum part of it as well. I didn't realize that and the booking office were kind of two separate things. Mm -hmm. I agree. I do think, though, to me, the footprint is what stands out the most. And I know you're going to mention that again later, but I just remember like turning that corner for the first time and seeing it there because that's the very last thing in that museum part. And it's kind of like, oh, my gosh, it's real. And here we go. We're getting on the ride. And it definitely heightens that anticipation. I think just the placement of it was very I liked that. One other thing I was going to talk about with Tower of Terror, I don't know why we keep comparing the two. I mean, I guess because they're so rich in storytelling. Yeah. Is why it makes sense. But 
Tower of Terror, you talk about doing fast pass, you don't miss any of the story for the most part. You maybe miss some of the gardens and things outside, but you can still see it because it's open air. This one, Everest is different because you do get two different experiences based on fast pass and standby. Like you don't go to the pagoda during fast pass. We're going to talk about an artifact that's in fast pass only that you wouldn't see standby. So that's interesting. I don't know if I like that. I I do think because it has been such a long time since we've rode um, just waiting in the standby line that you forget all of these different elements and all of the really all the effort that Imagineers put into setting up the story because most of the time we're just so excited to get on the ride and I think that's a shame. So I do wish that there was a way that they could incorporate some of those like museum pieces or different parts of the standby ride into the fast pass queue because you really do miss all of the the cool stuff in my opinion. So basically, after you leave the museum, you come into the depot station, and that's where you board your train to head to the base camp. So you head up a small hill and a portion of the track before you reach that 118-foot lift that takes you through another small temple, and then that's when you get to the top of the mountain. And that temple is interesting. There are many, many different artifacts in there. I feel like you notice something new each time. Mm -hmm. It's another one of those that I think is easily overlooked, but it's, again, just heightening the fact that you're getting closer to the Yeti and, you know, these people who live in that area are intimidated by the Yeti. Or they have respect for the Yeti. Well, that too. Or maybe they're giving him offerings to make him happy. Or her. Whatever it might be. So is the Yeti a... Overlord now? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, that's a, I just think like in social studies, since that's what I teach, you know, they give offerings to the gods and stuff to keep them happy. So they're giving offerings <laughs> to the Yeti to keep him happy. Let's offerings of uh, hair ties. <laughs> Lots of hair ties. And quarters. And quarters. So eventually you emerge from this little cavern and you stop to see that the train, the train tracks have been torn apart by the Yeti. And this next part is a spoiler alert. So if you never rode the ride and you want to be surprised, you might want to skip ahead a couple seconds. But once you've reached the edge, then you stop for a second and you kind of have that moment of what in the world is going to happen. And then that's when your train reverses and you head back into the mountain. You're spiraling down. You're going through the caverns. And then again, you come to a stop. This makes us think of, I don't remember if it's your dad or my dad, someone's dad is always like, do you go upside down when you're going backwards? It's your dad. Your dad says it all the time. Every time we get off the ride, I guess he says it. And it does give you that feeling. Did you find in your research how fast it goes? 50 miles an hour. Hmm. But that's at the drop. In the backwards part, you're not going nearly as that fast. It is a sharp bank, so I think that's why you get the G-forces. But you definitely do not go upside down. Yeah, well, I know you don't go upside down, but I'm just saying it creates that kind of feeling. And I I just didn't know if it was the speed or the turn or just that you're kind of 
discombobulated and you're going backwards all of a sudden and it's in the dark. Well, it's supposed to emulate that you are spiraling down the mountain, falling back down. Oh. So I kind of always viewed it as you are trying to escape the Yeti, but it's actually you are almost free falling to a certain extent and spinning back down. Oh, that's kind of terrifying. I mean, I don't think that's what the track does, but I think that's what it's supposed to emulate. <laughs> I knew the track didn't fall. But anywho, I get that. It's a very cool idea. That's I feel like to be an Imagineer, to think of something like that is very off the wall. See, I mean, I guess I could see why people would think it's going upside down. Because to me, I always, when you go backwards, no matter if you're seated at the front of the train or the back of the train, I know there's a broad discussion of where the best seat is, but I always have the butterflies in my stomach when I ride Expedition Everest, especially when you go backwards, like you have that gut butterfly sensation. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. So then once you stop spiraling backwards, you come to a stop. And you're cornered, again, without any additional track. And you can even see the tracks. Um, And there you see the Yeti ripping them up behind you. You're wondering where you're going to go next. And that's when you get to the big drop. The big, you know, the most anticipated part of this ride that you can see before getting on. So it launches you forward. Like Brendan said, you're going It's an 80-foot drop, 50 miles per hour, and you travel back through a forest and then back into another cave. And in this cave, you can hear the Yeti's roar for the first time. So as you hear the Yeti's roar, you're racing by, you're still twisting and turning, and then finally, you head back into a cave, and this is when you're faced with the Yeti. Miss Betty the Yeti. Betty the Yeti. I don't know if you were Yeti for that, to see (laughs) Betty. I was waiting for where you're going to plug that in. I mean, if you're Yeti, go and get it. <laughs> no, 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 no. Okay, <laughs> copyrighted now. I know. Can you do two back-to-back like that? I don't know if that's allowed. It is. But th- that's when you see the Yeti. She's reaching down to grab you, and you just barely get out with your life until you get back to the train station. After a very, very brisk stop. Oh, my gosh. Those brakes do not mess around on that one. No, and you get it like a double dip. Like, it stops you pretty hard the first time, and then it has to jerk you again. So, let's have that discussion. Where do you think is the optimal seat for this ride? Ooh. Uh, I don't know. It almost depends on what mood I'm in. I think I might prefer... Oh... I keep, like, going against myself in my head. I'm going to say front seat. Say I'm a back row gal. Like, not I'm not the last, last row. I'm, like, a good second to last or third to last. I almost like being in the front because you can, like, once you get to those tracks and they're broken apart before you go backwards, it's so interesting to be able to look out and really see what's out there. And, I mean, it's really like, oh, my gosh, where are we going to go? I'm stuck up here. So that scene, how many times have we seen the eagle fly up there to the top left above the tracks? I would say a disappointingly low amount. I can only remember once that we have seen it. I honestly can't remember seeing it. And I don't know if it's just because when I did, I took it for granted or maybe I wasn't paying attention. Now we always look 
Now we know to look for the eagle, but because you can hear it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Why? Why doesn't it show up every time? Does anybody know? I don't know. Hmm. One thing I do like, I know I said I'm a back row gal, but I do like when we sit in the front row, I still enjoy it because after you go backwards before the large drop, sometimes if you're specifically looking, you can watch the track flip before you head down the mountain, which another thing, another spoiler alert, if you love posing for pictures, um, when you head down the large drop, that is the photo pass like photo op. So pose before the first big drop after you've gone backwards. And this is a good one for photo ops. We talked about last week's Splash Mountain was a good one for photo ops. I think this one's a good one, too. You get a good view of everybody. I mean, Disney loves to put those photo pass at a drop. <laughs> oh, well, I mean, yeah. Pirates. <laughs> and is that where it is? Isn't there one for, um, like, the Frozen ride, too? Had a little drop? I don't know. Where is that picture? That I think that's a negative Bob. No, they have a picture. They have, yeah. Oh, and I don't know where it is. Um, yeah, it, the only plot hole that I can think of, the one that I'm not quite sure if it conveys a message that they intended it for, is after you reverse and you get cornered and you see the shadow of the Yeti, he's pulling up the tracks behind you to rip them up in the shadow. But presumably there are no tracks behind you. That's the only thing I can think of. Or are there? Are or is you know you seeing him pull it up? Does it make you switch the direction that you're going? Like you're going backwards, it would appear that you're going to keep going that way. You see him pull it up, so you got to go the other way. That's exactly what I'm saying. But there are no tracks behind you because they're supposed to be cornered. Because it's like you're up against the wall of the cave. Oh. Well, I don't know. I guess I live in fantasy world where it all makes sense. <laughs> okay. I mean, I, I, this is just the only thing that I can think of that doesn't exactly like add up to to maybe how it's intended to. Yeah, I could but see it's that. it's very minor. I mean, it's the same aspect of you saw the ripped up tracks before. You're seeing that he's doing it again. It, it verifies that he is the one. Who did it. Who did it the first time. Yeah. All right. Anything else on the ride or ready to go to history? Bring it on. This is long. (laughs) Complex, I guess maybe is a better word. So this ride opened on April 7th, 2006. First thing, can you even begin to believe that in June this ride will be, or actually, no, it already is 14 years old. Oh, my goodness. No. No, I feel like that is hard to believe, but it makes sense because we vividly remember, I feel like all of us can say that we vividly remember the promo material and the hype that we felt and like being able to go and ride it for the first time, like all of those feelings. It would make sense that we were like 10, 12, 11, however old we might have been for, you know, to have that excitement kind of feeling and that anticipation. Yeah, it still seems like a new ride to me. Oh, yeah, I would still put it in that category, but I guess it's really not anymore. Yeah, I mean, it's it's new-ish, but there, you just think about even in that park how many things have come after it or have been updated after it. What blew my mind 
the Safari switch from ditching Big Red and Little Red happened in 2012. Wow. This was six years before that. Man, what a prime time for Animal Kingdom. <laughs> you could hear Simba 1 and Chase a Yeti. Yeah. On the same day. All my favorite things, man. They should bring that back for a day. Like one of those 90s days or something. Early 2000s day. Yeah. So this ride, similar to the discussion that we had about Radiator Springs Racers, that racers almost saved DCA or it changed the course of history for DCA. A lot of that same discussion happens on Animal Kingdom with Expedition Everest, that it was exactly what the park needed at the exact right time to boost its numbers and to boost the attendance and give some some more things to do within the park. So to understand how we got to that point and how it saved Animal Kingdom, we need to talk about the beginning of Animal Kingdom of when it started. So when Animal Kingdom was first conceptualized, there was supposed to be two additional lands to the normal countries that you would see, or continents, I guess. (laughs) Sorry, continents. Africa and Asia, two continents. Yes. Plus, you know, they had the Maharaja Jungle Track, the Gorilla Falls Trail, all things like that. They were also supposed to have Dinoland USA, which made it. We have it. You can reserve your own opinion on if Dinoland should be there or not. And then you're supposed to have Beastly Kingdom as well. There are a lot of videos out there and podcasts about Beastly Kingdom. But just to give you a general overview of what was going on, it was supposed to be a land dedicated to the mythical side of nature. So unicorns, dragons, yetis. Are yetis mythical? I don't know. (laughs) Up to you to decide. My dad would believe no. (laughs) But budget cuts took Beastly Kingdom off of the map before the park was opened. And what I thought was interesting is the main budget concern that was cited was the cost of taking care of the animals. How do you miss that? How do you misappropriate those funds? I could almost believe that because when you get a dog, I mean, you factor in like, oh, they're going to need some shots. They're going to need some food. Oh, we're going to get them some toys. And... You know, just from being a dog owner, obviously all that goes out the window and you double your budget and they need more food than you could ever imagine and this, that and everything else. So, I mean, I can imagine something like a lion would also require the same. Yeah, but I I don't know. It's just so hard to imagine that they have all these veterinary experts and zoology experts from all over the world coming to this world-class facility and they miss the number by quite a lot. It is, it is surprising, but I do think that when we talked about the ride, you know, they did run into some things with the lions and, you know, maybe they just didn't adapt in the way that they wanted to. So maybe that was part of it. Yeah. I mean, they did have struggles early on getting all the habitats set up correctly, making sure they're all comfortable. Uh, lots of mis- unfortunate things that happened at the beginning of Animal Kingdom, but nonetheless, Though budget cuts caused Beastly Kingdom to get tabled. So the Imagineers who were vastly responsible for Beastly Kingdom were then approached by Universal to take a very similar idea and put it into Islands of Adventure 
in Universal Florida. A lot of them took them up on that offer, made the switch over to the rival park, and they opened up the Lost Continent and Islands of Adventure just one year after Animal Kingdom opened, Animal Kingdom opened in 1999. Lost Continent, a lot of similar ideas, dragons, they had the dueling dragons, coaster. They dealt more with um like the lost world and things like that. Mm-hmm. Which, fun fact, I do think it's interesting that, you know, though that group of Imagineers is kind of viewed as villains in this <laughs> story, almost all of the Lost Continent is gone now in Alliance of Adventure. Harry Potter absorbed most of it. Yeah. Do you think that's karma? Coming from a Disney cast member, Liz... Well, I am extremely biased. Um, (laughs) I've been to Universal once. I actually bought a three-day ticket, and I've only used one of the days. So the other two days have been expired for three years now. So, yeah, I'd I'd call that pretty... Yeah, it's karma. (laughs) I think that's interesting, though, that they would just get so mad and jump ship. I mean, I guess I could imagine that whenever you create something... And they just scrap it, you know, or table it quickly. I mean, that would be upsetting. So I could maybe see just from a creative standpoint where they maybe felt more validated by going to work on the Lost Continent. But it is shocking because I also think that when you're in a job like that, I mean, I just can't imagine being an Imagineer and leaving that job for anything. You know what I mean? Like, what a dream job. Yeah. I mean, like Liz said, we're biased. We're biased. We're, we are biased. But I do think it's fascinating. And talk about scandal. Can you imagine, like, working there and coming to work the next day and all the gossip and everything? Running into them at Publix. Yeah. <laughs> How scandalous. What are you guys working on? Yeah. <laughs> what ideas did you take with you? But um, all of that led to Dak really struggled out of the gate. Attendance dropped from year one to year two. Does that sound familiar? Poor, poor DCA. It's had the same fate. A similar story that it just kind of missed a little bit, that there wasn't everything that a guest would want out of visiting a park in a day. So on the fifth anniversary of Animal Kingdom in April of 2003, it was announced that a new ride would be added to the park opening 2006. Of course, as we know, it's named Expedition Everest. Joe Rohde, who was the lead designer for Animal Kingdom, was tabbed as the lead Imagineer for this project again. And he went all out. Like, more than you can ever imagine, they assembled a team and they traveled to Southeast Asia and to Nepal and to the Himalayas and brought back over 8,000 artifacts for this one attraction. I wonder if he had to, like, make some sort of deal. Like, I'm going to do this. Like, I'm going to bail you out. But I get full creative saying, complete reign, and I'm going to do whatever I want. And I wonder if Disney just had to be like, yeah, okay, go for it. I kind of think that Joe Rohde has such a love for Animal Kingdom, and it is his baby, that he wanted to save it. Oh, well, of course. Yeah, I feel like... You're saying maybe he used some negotiating skills to... Well, I just have to imagine that 
taking that trip and taking all these Imagineers and then bringing all these things back, I mean, that's going to be expensive. And I mean, it is very similar to kind of what we saw with Radiator Springs Racers. I mean, they left no stone unturned budget, you know, just whatever it takes. So maybe they had the same idea, but I can imagine if it's a struggling park, it is hard to pump more money into it. See, I kind of have the a different curiosity about how, you know, it transpired to be an all-out trip to the Himalayas. I wonder if it was sort of like a Hail Mary trip, like we're going to do as much as we can and we're going to invest as much as we have to try to save this park. Yeah. Quite possibly. So one of my favorite stories I've ever been told is about the artifacts in Expedition Everest. When it was told to us by Jeff and Sarah from Adults to Disney, I reached out to them to know where they learned it from, and they said they learned it from their friend Danielle. You can find on Instagram at Danielle Marie Does Disney. We'll put the link to her Instagram down in the comments below. And she heard it from a cast member who was on the opening team for Expedition Everest. So as you can imagine, it was kind of like the telephone game mm-hmm. that... I didn't want to try to regurgitate the story without getting it correct. So we reached out to Danielle and she shared it in her own words. So I'm going to read what she sent. And I think this just like personifies Joe Rohde and what he envisioned for this. So Danielle said, I was fortunate enough to be at the Animal Kingdom early one morning when the ride was still opening. This downtime afforded me the opportunity to learn this story from a cast member who worked on the ride during who worked on the ride. During Joe Rohde's travels to Southeast Asia doing research for Animal Kingdom, he fell in love with his antique ladder. He approached the owner and asked how much for the ladder. The woman replied, "It isn't for sale and it's been in her family for over 600 years." He then went on to make several offers for the ladder, but she still refused to part with the ladder. Unable to strike a bargain, he continued on his journey across Asia. As his trip came to a close, he decided to circle back and attempt to make one last offer for this ladder. Again, approaching this woman, she finally made a counteroffer willing to part with the family heirloom for, quote, enough money to retire on and two ladders. (laughs) So Joe agreed to this, got his ladder that he wanted, and she, and she was able to retire with two ladders to spare. <laughs> so this is the same ladder that resides in the queue of Expedition Everest just through the Fast Pass entrance on the right side. So we've walked by this ladder <laughs> 50 times probably. Oh, yeah. I've never noticed it. Not a single time. Because it's right when you walk into Fast Pass. Like Danielle said, it's on the right. Your focus is on the left because that's where you're turning towards. Mm-hmm. I would say 1% of riders of Everest even noticed this ladder. And it was that important to Joe Rohde to put it in there. <laughs> so, I mean, I love Joe Rohde. Obviously, I love Animal Kingdom. So the two go hand in hand. But was it also just one of those things? Do you think? I mean, I'm not trying to downplay the story because I love the story. Love Joe Rody, But do you think it was one of those things that like you just become obsessed with the chase? Like what? She said no. 
I want, I want the ladder. I will do whatever it takes to get the ladder. You know what I mean? Like if it was just one of those things where he was just unwilling to quit because in the grand scheme of things, I mean, what does the ladder do? I think from an imagineering perspective, I mean, that is storytelling like that getting an authentic 600 year old ladder from a village near the Himalayas to accompany your ride that is about a mythical Yeti. That's the Disney difference. That's the pinnacle. I mean, yeah. I, I, it's so silly and nobody notices it, but it was that important to put it in. Yeah. I mean, he's the man. I, I do think it's fun to listen to those stories, and I would be so interested to go around the ride and see what other fun stories there are. Because, I mean, he brought back 8,000 artifacts, and that's just one. So there are 7,999 other artifacts that probably have some pretty interesting stories. Oh, yeah. And I bet he can name each one of them and where he got them. Yeah. How crazy. He should have his own show on Disney Plus. I'm going to write to somebody and tell them that. I feel like maybe it's coming. I don't know. Well, if it does, it was my idea. <laughs> you heard it here first. <laughs> so 1998, so we just celebrated the... How many years, Liz? 22? Well, 2018 would be the 20-year anniversary. So 25 would be coming up soon. Maybe we could get like some special material for that. Yeah. I mean, that would be pretty awesome for him to like do a, some sort of sit down or even like a tour. Like what if he took you through the queue and like pointed things out or told you stories? I know he frequently does the dine with Imagineers. So hmm. I wonder how much that costs. <laughs> it's a premium experience. Yeah, I can imagine. So... Of course, Joe Rody took his team out to the Himalayas. They got all the perfect ladders and everything else that they could possibly need. But back on the home front, the hype and the marketing for this attraction was unreal. This is the first attraction or expansion that I can actually remember the hype surrounding this huge attraction, this groundbreaking attraction opening in Walt Disney World. Mm -hmm. I mean, I completely agree. I remember watching Disney Channel, and of course, all Disney Channel is is one big promo ad, yeah, for Disney. And you know, same thing with when you watch the parades and whatever else. But they just pump you up to want to go so bad. And I remember watching um, like the walkthroughs, and they would tell you about the story, and they would show you different artifacts and. I remember thinking like, oh, my God, I can't wait to go back and we're going to ride this ride and it's a roller coaster. And, you know, how thrilling because, you know, once you start to get to that middle school age, I mean, part of you does think that, oh, they're just baby rides. And this was, you know, we were getting older and this was a thrill ride and it was like right up our alley for everything that we would want to do on a vacation. Which I think Catherine and I were much later to the thrill roller coaster game than <laughs> than most than most. Yeah. So this was a very critical point in our Disney journey. 
So there were TV ads, like the one that you heard at the beginning of this episode. There was a live second segment on Good Morning America featuring the construction going on. There was a feature show on the Discovery Channel that Joe Rody was a part of and explaining it. He's got a very famous quote about the Yeti, talking about how huge, miraculous, and groundbreaking it is. It's kind of like ominous knowing where the Yeti is now. To, bum, hear, bum, bum. to hear him talk about it. <laughs> um, but then the most interesting thing that they did was there was a huge display in Times Square. So they dropped these gigantic banners to cover the sides of these buildings in Times Square. And they had acrobats and people repelled down the sides of them. Mickey was there in like a Himalayan hiker's get-up. <laughs> it was awesome. And all of that put together just made this such mass hysteria almost, I feel like. Way first couple years that this ride opened, it broke all kinds of wait time records previously. Now Rise of the Resistance would laugh at that, but at for the time, waiting two plus hours for an attraction was almost unheard of. Mm-hmm. So really, really big deal when it finally opened. The construction of the ride, so it's built in three different components. It has the steel track, the mountain, and the Yeti itself. The Yeti is the largest animatronic ever built by Disney. And as you probably know, the Yeti has caused many issues over the years. And for the majority of its existence, it has been in what they call Mode B, which is a... What's the fun name? Disco Yeti. (laughs) So it is a no-movement Yeti and strobe lights hit on it to give the illusion that it's moving. It still looks like it is. I do think that you go by fast enough. Now, I will say it's not as exciting. And maybe it's just because we know that it's not moving deep down. But I do remember... Like being in middle school or high school and, you know, it's actually kind of like lunging at you or it's reaching for you. I do think it has a different effect than the strobe light. It does. Yeah, it's a much different ride experience for sure. So there's not an exact write up of here are all the issues with the Yeti. Yeah, You can't find that on Google? No, it is a very, (laughs) very complex issue. But the best that I can tell, it is a structural integrity issue that because the Yeti is so heavy and moved so much, it began to make stress fractures in the column that is holding it up. And they feared that allowing it to keep moving would test the integrity of the whole structure. That sounds terrifying. So I think, like previously, I just thought, oh, it's just like a robotics issue. Like, why can't they just go in and fix the robotics issue? It's actually like a deep, like you don't have the support to do this mm-hmm. from what I can tell. Joe Rody had, he said at D23, I think in like the early 2010s, we are going to fix the Yeti. He's repeatedly said on Twitter, they are going to fix it. Do you think they'll ever fix it? Well, I mean, I think, like you said, if it's not like a mechanical issue, if it's a structural issue, 
you know, that's something you got to shut down the ride. You got to get in there and really see what it is. I mean, I can imagine that, you know, that's just a huge undertaking. I mean, obviously money isn't typically an issue for Disney. So I don't know if it's that, but I think even just having to shut down that ride for a prolonged period of time could, I mean, it could potentially hurt the park. Hmm, a ride shut down for a prolonged period of time. I wonder <laughs> when that would happen. Oh my goodness. <laughs> now but, would be ideal. But I I don't know. It's been so many years. I want to stay hopeful for Betty because I'd love to see her well again. <laughs> um, but I just, I don't know. I'm not convinced yet i think it might take another expansion for animal kingdom because definitely before pandora animal kingdom could not support that the missing people churning that everest provides i say that but they had no regard for that in hollywood studios (laughs) they did not care at all to shut things down and say you have three rides that you can ride today you know, that's valid. Yeah. But I'd almost feel like they even need more attractions to be able to absorb it missing. Mm-hmm. So, of course, the issue comes with that to access the Yeti and the parts that they need to fix it. It is presumed that you have to deconstruct the mountain itself to get the Yeti out or to do the work that they need to do. And see, I think that's what would be the craziest part because it's one thing to fix something and have it hidden, but I do think it would be almost too much or it would just be too crazy to see that. I mean, can you imagine going to Animal Kingdom and walking through Asia and you are literally seeing them take apart the mountain? I mean, to me, that almost loses some of the, I mean, some of the magic. Can you imagine if they covered that whole thing with scrim so you couldn't see it? (laughs) That would be pretty wild. It'd be impressive. I mean, I guess I did it for, was that Hong Kong's castle that was under scrim for so long? And it was huge. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I guess they, they have enough. They could they, do that. Yeah, I mean, it's Disney. They can do it. But I I think that's the issue. Which I think I'm, I'm going to talk a little bit more about it later. But Everest is almost half facade. So, I don't know if they could deconstruct enough to fix it from the back, like have just a fake facade of the mountain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. know. I, I almost don't think it's ever going to get fixed. And I'm, I'm content with that. I'm fine with it. It'd be awesome if they did, but I also don't want Everest to close for two years just so that we can get a lurching Yeti. Yeah. And I mean, Honestly, if you never got to see it move, like it's not it's not like you're missing anything. You know, it's not like she's not there or you know whatever. I think you still get the same kind of effect. It might not be as much, but you still get the gist of everything. So the good news is Disney did learn their lesson from this experience. There's not been another animatronic quite as big as the Yeti, but other more advanced ones like the Shaman and Navi River Journey, Hondo Anaka and Smuggler's Run, and Kylo Ren and Rise of the Resistance all were built in such a way where they can be removed, they can be swapped out, 
In Kylo's instance, a screen can drop down and show that same scene digitally instead of having the actual animatronic there. So they have learned their lesson in, instead of having one animatronic with one access point, and if it goes down, you're in trouble. <laughs> I feel bad for the person who created the Yeti. You know, can Joe you imagine? Was it, but like the he he has the idea, but the person who physically built the Yeti, whoever those engineers, techie kind of people, you know, that would have been such a huge accomplishment. And then later to be like, it broke, <laughs> or like you know what? How sad. <laughs> yeah. All right. Almost done with history. The design process for this ride was one of the first to use three D modeling on a computer. So it took the design process from an estimated three years down to just 18 months. They cut it completely in half, which is really impressive that they were able to get this up in three years since it was such a huge project. And it still holds the Guinness World Record for the most expensive roller coaster ever built. How much do you think it was? Oh, my goodness. Uh, I'm trying to think of other rides. Somewhere in the upper... Millions, 75 million. 100 million. Ooh. So it still holds the record, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. I would be interested to see what Hagrid's cost for Universal. I would be too. Because that has a lot of technology, and obviously that's expensive. But they did use an existing track. Did they? Ish, no. I mean, it's where dueling dragons used to be so maybe it's not the same i don't know i think they ripped the tracks completely out oh because i was gonna say that would cut down costs see i'm interested because their animatronics are still pretty state-of-the-art for hagrid's and they're partially outdoors so you would think those animatronics would cost so much to be weather resistant yeah i don't know We'll have to look that up and see if we can even find a price. It's so hard to find the costs for these things. Does anybody know anybody at Guinness that we can <laughs> We can <laughs> ask. Not off the top of my head. All right. That's the history. That is the virtual ride walkthrough. Let's take a quick break, and then we'll be back for the rest of the show. This episode is brought to you by Karma and Kismet. Kelly has reached the pinnacle of designs. She has a baby Yoda with Mando, Father's Day mug available in her shop, and it's without a doubt the best thing I've ever seen in my entire life. I showed our entire family at dinner tonight. It has Mando, he's holding Baby Yoda, and it says, my dad is out of this world. I don't think I have to share anything else to incite you to go check this out. So head to karmaandkismetdesigns.com and grab yours today. We'll put the link to that down in our show notes and use the code DETOUR10 for 10% off of your order. Okay, so we're back and we're going to talk about just what we think as far as the takeaways from this ride and kind of what stood out to us the most in researching and looking at some of this history. So I'll go ahead and start. What stands out the most to me is that even though this ride was kind of built similar to Radiator Springs Racers, it was an e-ticket attraction. Its whole purpose was to just draw 
people into Animal Kingdom, it's not just a thrill ride. You know, you look at all these other amazing roller coasters, and if they were looking for a thrill ride, they could have easily just built a roller coaster. But they really did take those extra measures to completely research, to go out to the Himalayas and to find realistic artifacts and, you know, create this elaborate backstory that carries into all of Asia as you're walking around that area of the park. And I think kind of what you can take from that is if you're going to do something, you need to just do it right. Because there's a lot of ways that I do think they could have cut corners. You know, it would have been so easy for them to just recreate that ladder. And, you know, no one would ever, no one would ever know. Um, But if you're going to do something, you should do it right. And I do think eventually it paid off in the end, you know, making that investment, making the most expensive roller coaster. I think it served its purpose for sure for Animal Kingdom. Yeah, I mean, I the ladder is in mine as well. <laughs> the ladder is the key to all this. Uh, Liz, why don't you go ahead and share yours? Um, to me, the most significant thing um, is the outward appearance of Expedition Everest to me. Um, I think the extent of theming with the land and the queue is equal to the mountains and the Magic Kingdom theme park. Um, and I appreciate having the Himalayan mountains as a focal point of the park, whereas the newer thrill attractions, like the ones still being built, are painted in sky blue and tree green, and they're not going to hold the same iconic significance in the parks. Um, and as a cast member, um, I was really, spoiler alert, um, flabbergasted to learn that the mountain isn't complete 360 degrees around. Um, just because when you're inside the land and when you're going through the queue and you're on the attraction, it feels like you are on the literal mountain. So driving backstage um, and working, you can see that the back of Expedition Everest is completely open and is exposing the structural integrity of the attraction. And it's pretty darn amazing. Um, And you have no idea that there is an actual backside of the mountain. Um, And this half facade style of building is still somewhat seen and more easily noticeable um, in Galaxy's Edge. Um, And you can see that style and the facade of the building when you're actually outside of the Hollywood Studios theme park. So if you typically drive to Disney or around Disney property, if you're traveling on Osceola Parkway and you drive past Hollywood Studios and you take the right exit towards, it's the exit going to the right to Magic Kingdom, Epcot, and Disney Springs, you look to that right when you're going off the exit and you can see the half-built mountains of Galaxy's Edge which is really surprising to me. Um, Not that they use that type of building, the facade style. It's just surprising that you can see almost the storytelling end when you're even on Disney property. So it's just a fun Everest. Which I almost don't like that. I don't don't like seeing the backside of Galaxy's Edge. No. I'm fine seeing backstage areas. Like, no problem. Galaxy's Edge is different. It strikes a nerve. Yeah. Like, you're on Batu. <laughs> you're in another world. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I think that's a good point, is that Everest is such an iconic visual. 
that it's probably one of the most photographed parks, parts of the parks. Mm-hmm. If it wasn't for the Tree of Life being so dang beautiful, <laughs> still think I'm in love with the Tree of Life, yeah. then it would for sure be the icon of Animal Kingdom. Mm-hmm. It's and, up there. If, if someone sees a picture, I mean, you know where it is. You can picture it. You, you know, it takes you to that place. I mean, that's what I love when you're at Splash Mountain or when you're at Space Mountain or Big Thunder Mountain. Like when you're at the mountains, you know you're at a mountain. So I think it's just wonderful. They've incorporated the same level of detail and care into this iconic thrill attraction as they did for the first original e-tickets. Yeah. Yeah, and I would say... Just for my takeaways, it's all about the details. That, again, the story is being told to you when you're passing Yak and Yeti. You're still like a five to seven minute walk away from the front entrance of the queue. Maybe if you walk slow. Or if there's a lot of people. If there's a lot of people. Stop for a snack. You stop to see the, I want to say monkeys, but I don't think they're monkeys. Apes. Do they have tails? They do have tails. They are monkeys. Stop and see the monkeys for a while. Stop and see the shrine that lines up perfectly with the outline of the thing. Like, it's just all about the details. It's the dang ladder, Catherine. (laughs) It's the ladder. It is. Like, the fact that it is so important to have those peripheral details to tell the complete story that they want to tell is the whole point, I think. And I think what we can take away from that is that everything you do should be leading towards a common mission and leading towards a intentional message to it's everything is leading in the same direction. Yeah, I mean, I think that's really important. I know this is a storytelling episode, but that's something that we talk a lot about, too, in our other episodes and when we talk to content creators is if you have that vision and if everything lines up then you know that's always really important you can apply that to a lot of things in life so what are your favorite stories or memories from expedition everest well i think a lot come to mind and i do think most of them are from being younger just the hype for the ride um I remember very vividly riding this in middle school. We would go a lot. And I had, like most kids, just like a little digital camera. And we brought it to the parks. And I remember I had it on my wrist. And we rode the ride probably just over and over and over again. And I remember we were trying to take a picture of the Yeti. And I just remember getting the shot and we're, you know, we're standing outside the ride after we just rode it going through the pictures. And I remember seeing the shot and thinking, oh my God, I'm amazing. Like, look at this. And like, I can still, like right now I can see the picture in my mind that I took because I was so excited and I was so proud of it. And I just, you know, I remember waiting in the queue those first couple times where you were waiting hours, but there was so much to look at you know, and it feels like you're in a museum, so it feels so real. You know, especially when you're an impressionable kid. You're like, oh, my God, there is a Yeti. Look at this. So I remember all that, and I think that stands out to me the most. I always felt like it was very – it's intimidating, but it's also approachable. 
I don't know why. I can't pinpoint why it is. Like, Space Mountain is scary for a lot of kids. Probably the dark. Mm-hmm. Everest is a much more intense ride, but I feel like, for some reason, it draws people in more. I think maybe because you can see it go down the largest drop. So maybe it's easier to ease people into because you can see the thrill. And I was going to say, I wonder if it's something about Animal Kingdom. Because I feel like Animal Kingdom is not known for thrill rides. So I wonder if kids, you know, who've just been walking around all day or doing this, that, or whatever else, you know, if their parents say, let's go on Expedition Everest. You know, I wonder if they're just kind of not in that mindset to be scared of it. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Hmm. We need a theme park psychologist to tell us. <laughs> we do. Can't say. Um, I don't know. We do have so many wonderful memories. Of course, we've been to Disney quite a few times in the past altogether. But um, Catherine and I, of course, grew up going to Walt Disney World and being so close in age. Naturally, we had our mutual friends come with us for a few special trips. Um, but this past December was one of my favorite times at Animal Kingdom because our oldest childhood friend and her husband came to Disney. And one of our best friends refused to ride Everest with me, which was completely out of character considering how many times we've rode the attractions together and I knew she loved thrill attractions. So it was at this point in time that I learned she was expecting. And for me, I cannot keep a secret to save my life. So it was just a wonderful memory um, that I have. And it was so special that I learned that she was expecting her baby and they were starting their family. And I got to learn that at Walt Disney World. So that's always going to stay with me. And how I learned that first. I was going to say, you you threw it in there. I mean, you learned first. I knew you were going to throw that in there. But that's a good one. So for me, like I said before, I think this is the first time that I was aware of the hype surrounding an expansion or a new attraction. There were probably a few that happened before then. I can't remember when Figment was changed for the second time. There was some hype around that, but not much. Mm -hmm. Not nearly to this level. We did go, my family did go to California Adventure the first year that it opened, but I was too young to really comprehend the hype around that either. So this is kind of like the first big thing that like even kids at school would be talking about. Like, have you seen, have you been watching Disney Channel? You know, Expedition Everest is huge, you know? <laughs> and I think for that reason, it's kind of, always, I've always marveled at it. And looked at it in a different light just because it was like that first big thing. So I want to say it was one of the first roller coasters, big kid roller coasters is what I'm calling it, that I ever rode. And people doing the math can figure out that I was probably like 14 at the time. So <laughs> I was late to the thrill ride game as well. But it's just... I mean, the smoothness and the storytelling and something about it was just approachable. Or maybe it's just because Disney Channel had pounded it into my head so many times <laughs> that I have to ride this that I had no anxiety about getting on it. Yeah. The, pow the power of TV and social media yeah. brainwashing us all. I will say the other thing is when we went for my high school graduation trip 
in 2011, we rode this as a family with my parents and with my brother and sister-in-law. And we, the only time I can ever remember, we bought the actual... <laughs> the ride. The ride photo. Picture, yeah. We didn't have Memory Maker or PhotoPass, whatever they were calling it at that time. But we bought the actual photo, and it's one of my favorite photos of our family. So, it's a good one. It is a good one. Becca, our sister-in-law, is scared to death. She's one of those where, like, she just kind of, like, curls up in a ball on rides, like, when you drop and things like that. So, it's always funny to watch the pictures that she's in. Yeah. So, next, again, this week we reached out to our listeners and asked you guys What are your stories and your memories or your takeaways from this ride? So we got a couple to share from Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. First one is Abby, who is Polka Dot Paws by Abby. We've done an episode with her. Abby said, when we made our first trip to the East Coast for our honeymoon in 2016, being an Imagineering enthusiast, I knew a lot about the parks already, but my husband was pretty much just along for the ride. He had no idea Everest was going to go backwards. So at the top, as we were sitting there waiting for the tracks to switch over, he is just trying to figure out what the heck is going on and what is going to happen next. He thought maybe the track was going to tilt forward somehow, but he got a big surprise when he started rolling backwards. I wish they had that moment on video. And I just love that. I feel like there's just something so great and so just like pure about not seeing the rides beforehand or like walking into something completely unknowing because oftentimes people do spoil it ahead of time and I love it I love being on any kind of ride where you know you're with someone who's riding it for the first time it's it's exciting it is I imagine it's kind of like Splash Mountain like riding that with someone for the first time would be amazing so fun next one is from Robert from the Talking Llamas podcast that we just talked to a couple weeks ago he said I somehow got my six-year-old daughter to go on this last fall. She was afraid to ride it a second time, not because it was too intense, but because she thinks a real Yeti lives in the mountain. My response to that was, where is she wrong? Spot the (laughs) lie. You are so right. Amanda, five little elephant elephants said, my son loved this ride. Here he is hamming it up. And I wish I could share a picture with you guys through the (laughs) podcast. Because he is a happy young man standing, pointing to the mountain. And he has such a face of, I conquered this. And I think it is a lot of kids, like, first big kid ride. Yeah. Or, I mean, just going through a mountain with a Yeti. I mean, that's a pretty big deal. Yep. Next is from Ashley, who is Travels by Ash on Instagram. So I'm pretty sure the one time I rode it years ago, I passed out a few times. I'm not a big intense ride person, but I do love Dinosaur, Big Thunder, etc. I think Everest was too much for my body. It felt like I kept falling asleep, waking up, falling asleep. I was bummed I didn't see the Yeti. I think that's when Disco Yeti began, but I didn't know it at the time. Which, it reminds me of like the videos that you see of people doing like the slingshots. Yes, yes, <laughs> that's exactly what I thought of. I'm glad that I've never experienced that. I don't know if that's scary or if it's fun or what happens after that, but I'm glad you got to go on it. (laughs) It seems terrifying. (laughs) I I would like to talk to the people that you wrote it with. Were they concerned about you or I wonder if you would even notice. 
you know, like you definitely have to be like looking at the person instead of looking at everything else that's going on. The only time I've ever thought I was going to pass out was during that uh, Mickey's death will in DCA. <laughs> well, I think that's just because we were holding on for our lives. Well, I didn't breathe for like a solid six minutes. But you didn't pass out. So props to us. And then the last one I thought was so interesting. I did not know this. You learn something new every single day. Josh, our friend from Practically Perfect Park Hopping, Nashville, represent. I love that you can find a photo of Josh Gates in the queue with one of his Yeti findings. I also love the amount of authenticity that Joe Rody put into this attraction, so much so that it even impresses Nepalese people. I did not know this about Josh Gates at all, so I had to research it, and Josh provided me a picture as well. So he is from the TV show Destination Truth. I don't know if you guys have ever watched that, but when they were filming a Yeti episode in 2007, he found a what is believed to be an authentic cast of a Yeti foot. And so he donated that to Joe Rody and to Walt Disney World, and it is one of the artifacts that is included. It's the... Yeah, it's the footprint. It's the footprint. It's the cast of it. And it's legit. Too legit to quit. That's true. Wow. And Josh Gates' photo was there and everything. I, I saw it. So we'll have to look for that next time. But again, the authenticity and the dedication to making this legitimate is overwhelming. That is. That's incredible. And I feel like that's... That's one of those things that is just really cool for them to connect and for him to offer that and to, you know, put it in this attraction to give it that extra oomph, you know, like, I mean, I don't know what else you would do with a Yeti footprint. That's not like something you can just put over your fireplace mantle, but that's really cool that he did that. You couldn't? I mean, I don't know if I would. That's not your It's rather big. Yeah. (laughs) Not many people will see it. The moment Joe Rody has been waiting for, he's been waiting on pins and needles to see what we give him as our Neverland score. I'm sure him and Tony Baxter are sitting and waiting to see who won this battle. Mm-hmm. We've given a lot of high scores out, and I'm afraid we're going to do the same thing again today. I mean, you have to. You have to give it a high score. All right. Catherine, what is your Neverland score? So- Which is composed of the ability... To take you out of reality, the story you're being told, rewritability, effects of technology, and emotional attachment. I had to give this ride a nine and a half. And I do think that it has everything you could ever want in a ride. Um, It's set up so nicely. Even if you miss the small details, you know, even if you didn't know the in-depth story like we talked about today, Um, You can get at least a good gist of it, you know, just kind of walking through the line. Um, It builds that anticipation. It's one of those that we must ride it every time. I honestly can't think of a time that I've been to Animal Kingdom and I haven't rode this ride. Because you can do single rider. Yes, single rider is important. Whenever we make fast passes, this is on the list of like a must do fast pass for us. Um, and I just think the rewritability is there. It's upsetting that the Yeti doesn't work. I don't really know if, like, that's why I would take points away. I mean, I guess if I had to be nitpicky, that's why, you know, maybe I would take away that half point. But I think everything is there for me. And I just love the ride. That's why I picked it. 
think it's a very solid and very fair rating, Catherine. Um, I think I'm a little bit more critical. I would only give it a 9 out of 10. I also write it every time I go to Animal Kingdom. Um, I think it's great, like you said, because there's single rider line. Um, and I also think it's a really quick attraction to experience. So it doesn't take up a long part of your day, even if you are in the standby line, because the train is so long, you can fit so many guests on the train from a cast member standpoint. I love that. I love a quick line. Um, so yeah, I, I love the attraction. Um, but I would have to give it a nine out of 10 just because for the affection technology, I love Betty the Yeti. I want her to be well. And she's not fully functional. So <laughs> I'm sorry, Betty. You're getting a nine. Um, so I was just looking back. Catherine, this is now tied with Radio Springs Racers as your highest score. Really? You're going to have to start going to like not even half points. You're going to start doing I know, like, like quarter points. Yeah. I'm going to have to get a little creative with my scoring here. This one is my highest score so far. Really? I gave it a nine and a half as well. And for me, the only reason I can't give it a 10 is because it's not Rise of the Resistance. <laughs> if we made this two years ago, I probably would have given it a 10. I was going to say, and I almost feel bad for thinking that way. Like, I even thought that today. I read your commentary and we've mentioned it so many times. And I always feel bad for, like, that's the only reason I'm knocking points is just because it's not that ride. But I almost feel like you just can't help it. Yeah, I mean, just because, I mean, I it's almost pointless to do a Rise of the Resistance episode because... Because we would just fangirl. We would just fangirl, and I do think it is the perfect ride. It's the perfect storm. So it's almost like, it's not that, so it can't be a 10. Yeah. But I think it's really, really dang close. I think it has... Everything you could possibly want from a thrill and a storytelling aspect. And to do that without intellectual property involved is unbelievable. Yeah. You know, if Joe Rohde is listening, it just means that he has to build us a new ride and up the ante a little bit. Was he included in Flight of Passage? I don't know. I mean, I'm sure Mm. he played a role for sure. I wonder if he was the lead. I don't know. Um, but I was just curious about that. Because if he did both of those, he's killing it, man. I mean, he's killing it no matter what. He has his own ears. So Talk about goals. I want to leave with this. We talked about Joe Reddy does the Dining with Imagineer. Uh, my dream scenario is just to walk in to... It just escaped me. The lounge. The Nomad's Lounge. lounge. Nomad's Lounge. See Joe Rody sitting at the bar and pop a seat next to him. I don't even need to talk. <laughs> I just need to listen. I just like be in his presence. <laughs> so uh, if anybody ever knows when he is going to head in there or when he's going to go have dinner at Tiffin's, let me know. I will be on the first flight down there because that is a dream. Or like potentially drive over there maybe like ever someday that would be a dream someday someday all right anything else you want to add on everest i don't think so i think that wraps it up 
Well, good deal. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Thank you, Elizabeth, for joining us on this one. We will be back on Monday with a brand new interview with Jason from Here with the Magic, one of the best YouTube channels that I found recently. I've been watching the videos constantly. So, so much fun. Hope you guys can join us then, and we will talk to you on Monday. Thank you for listening to Detour to Neverland. Subscribe to the show and leave a review to help more people find us. Follow us on Instagram at Detour to Neverland underscore podcast to see our pictures from the parks. See you real soon.